So in that way, it's disappointing to see those kinds of splitting. It was never resolved. It is. I would have definitely like wanted to see more of a kind of like the principled coin with a that like tries to be Bitcoin, but but you know follows consistent big block values. But yeah. I don't know maybe I should just like stop expecting projects that I have no involvement in to uh, care at all about what my values are. And you know like maybe Ethereum just like is interesting. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin Cash podcast following Bitcoin Cash on its rise to global reserve currency. This is episode number 22. Dan Held from the Bitcoin community and Vitalik Buterin from the Ethereum community on Bitcoin Cash BCH. Today is Monday, the 14th of June, 2021. I am your host, Jeremy, and no guest today because as you might be able to guess from the title we're going to be doing a bit of a review of some perspectives from outside the bitcoin cash community as to where we are and uh, how things are going which i thought would be interesting you know i think one of the things we struggle with in the crypto community is it's often hard to get a valid critique from the argument against cryptocurrencies because a lot of the time people arguing against it just don't understand what it's even about or they're missing a lot of fundamental uh, pieces of the, the knowledge required so their criticism can just sort of be dismissed on those grounds. So often the best place to get criticisms of any one crypto is to get it from another crypto community who are sort of down the rabbit hole and they do understand the fundamental ideas Maybe they've just got a slightly different angle and from being outside the community, they can have sometimes more of a uh, objective take. So that's why I thought we could do in an episode of this. And recently I've been watching some crypto content that I thought was, was really good. And I thought we could uh, take a bit of a look at that. Right. So first things first, as always, we've got the price USD $621.59 for Bitcoin cash today so i can't even really track but i think it's a little bit down from the last episode but it's up from some <laughs> recent lows so as per usual uh very volatile and one btc now buys about 63 bitcoin cash so also a little bit down against btc although it has been on a surge today it was uh the ratio was not as favorable for btc uh, a day or two ago so once you know the price still still doing its thing still meandering along uh and then as far as the transactions go we've just sort of leveled off a bit both in btc and bch with bch about the 100k range has just been steadily uh ticking along with that since the uh drop off after noise.cash started batching their transactions I do have some special insight and updates about that uh, that we'll come to on a later slide as well. And BTC Bitcoin has also really just maintained this kind of lower level of activity where it has been in the 200 to 230,000 transaction range for, for several weeks now, uh, which is nowhere near that 400,000 cap that I've discussed in, in previous episodes quite a lot. So really it seems like their their network has, has settled down a little bit and the fees have 
uh, fallen on, on the Bitcoin network as a result too. But it's very interesting that even though we've had that recent bubble and price hype and things were hitting all-time highs and now it has gone back, you know, it has settled off a bit and the price has kind of dropped off a bit too. So I think this does lend some credence to my theory that it's not the Bitcoin bubble is, is not going to be back in full swing and going to euphoria and mania and whatever, because it seems like to some extent the on-chain metrics are backing that up, that the hype has died down a bit and there's really not as much activity occurring as there was uh, before. And so then when we have a look at our other stat that I always check in on, the cent uh, in USD chart uh, for the one year for Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin. Bitcoin Cash has just been consistently ticking along a little below the 10 billion mark. And while Bitcoin has had a very, very wild ride, it hit this all-time high of close to 70, uh, you know, billion, more than 70 billion, 74 or so billion cent, and then plummeted way off down to 20 billion and then was in the 20 to 10 billion range for three or four days, uh, or maybe even five or six days, really. And this, funnily enough, was at the exact time that the Miami conference, the Bitcoin 2021 conference was going on that I was talking about on the previous episode. So that doesn't really make a lot of sense, (laughs) or maybe it does after a fashion, which is that while everybody was at this conference hobnobbing and telling each other how great Bitcoin was, then no, no, no deals were being done. Nobody was actually really trading in Bitcoin BTC. It seems like, uh, during that, during that conference. And then short, just after the conference, there was a one day where it spiked massively up to 55 billion, uh, from, you know, 12, 12 billion up to 55 billion. So more than quadrupled four and a half X in one sing in one day, and then it crashed back off and now it's back down close to in the, in the 10 billion again. So it seems, you know, I, I don't know whether this is the only factor, but it does seem certainly odd that it, it hit an all time high of activity right before the conference. During the conference, it leveled out at just barely above what the BCH cent was doing then spiked way up after the conference as everybody got the idea they'd been (laughs) fooled and sold out potentially. Uh, And then, then it's fallen back down and it is barely, barely above the, uh, the BCH cent per day. So, I mean, Bitcoin cash did already have a day or two where it flipped the BTC cent volume before then uh, fading back a little bit but it has just been pretty consistently chugging along and it seems BDCs having, having a bad day and as activity drops off on the chain, lower transactions, even with lower fees, uh, BDCs not really putting through as much commerce, which means that the difference between the two networks essentially only comes down to the uh, security and the, and the brand name, the hash power and the brand name. If they're doing an equivalent amount of actual cash being traded uh, USD value sent across the network each day, then the utility is 
effectively equivalent and really the brand name and the hash power is the only thing that separates uh, that 63 to 1 ratio that we saw before. So it's a very, very positive thing, I'd say, for Bitcoin Cash as well. The fact that it has just been consistently putting up good uh, amount of, of cent value shows that maybe there is a, a real economy growing there. So, yeah, some further light on this was uh, added, was shed by was has been shared by Simon, who is the ad administrator of Noise.cash and Reese.cash, which are these online sites. So Noise.cash is like a Twitter clone where people can make tweets, basically, or noises, and then uh, other people can share that around. But every time you like somebody else's post, they get rewarded with one cent or a random amount of Bitcoin cash. And read.cash is more like a WordPress style thing where you can write a blog article. And again, if people like it, they can send you a dollar or two dollars or 10 cents or up to $10,000 or up to any amount they want. And so I had theorized in previous episodes that uh, a lot of this uh, cent value in USD was coming from those platforms from noise.cash uh, and read.cash, specifically noise.cash, because in that scenario, you could be tipping somebody one cent, but they could be sending a transaction where they were sending one cent to that person and $99 back to themselves, and therefore it would massively overinflate the amount of cent value in USD uh, relative to the amount of actual economic activity occurring. But apparently that is not correct because Simon gave me this inside information he sent to me. So this is a direct quote. I'll read it out here. He says, you mentioned on your last podcast that noise.cash tips accounted for maybe 30 to 40% of USD sent per day at the top, but it's far from being correct. We had 400 wallets, still do, out of laziness, don't touch what works. Each of them always had at most $100. At the top, we were doing around 300 to 340,000 transactions per day around March 15th to 30th. So let's estimate the maximum amount. 340,000 transactions sending $100 each, one cent plus $99.99 change back, that would be 34 million in BCH cent per day. At the time, there was six to seven billion USD cent per day, so we accounted for 0.5%, not 30 to 40%. And that's the maximum, because realistically, each wallet only had $100 right when we refilled it, but then it was drained for 10 days to about $5 when it was refilled to $100 again. So I'd say that the more correct number would be $50 on average per wallet, so per transaction in any given day. That gives us 0.25% of the USD sent in the aforementioned days, even if we consider full amounts, including the change in each transaction, which is what USD sent per day likely does. So that's from his message. And that is really, really, really interesting. Firstly, it's just interesting to get a bit of insight into the way noise.cash works so they have 400 different payout wallets and they set them up with a hundred dollars each and just you know refill them as they slowly get uh tipped out to people that's kind of uh, interesting but really this these numbers are quite astounding if the cent value of all of that on-chain activity is only 0.5 or even 0.25 percent of all the usd sent on the chain i find that immensely bullish for BCH because it means that while the uh, big rise in transactions that we've seen, a lot of that has been driven by noise.cash that, you know, that's confirmed if it was up to 
340,000 transactions per day and is now, uh, you know, quite a bit lower, but that, you know, it did generate a lot of transactions. But if it was not accounting for the huge rise in USD cent that we've also seen, that it means those, that value is coming from somewhere else, other people using the network for other apps as well. And that's great because the more different apps, the more use cases, the more economic utility, the better. You don't want it all to be on one single service that is providing all the all the value and all of the traction. So that that's absolutely amazing. So then he continued on. He had done some of his own digging. Uh, so he, he linked me to these sets of transactions that he found and said, these 20 transactions from the ones that he linked alone are around 1.4 billion out of yesterday's 7.4 billion cent. Down below, there's a 25-something transaction chain of 44 million of sends, about 1.1 billion in a similar fashion. Then there's like 40 transaction chain of 26 million of sends, 1.0 billion. Then there's 50 transaction chains of 22 million sends, 1.1. In total, I calculated that there were at least 7.2 billion moved in these chains while in this is over several days, while in reality, the second column, there were only around 2 million moved, probably less, since I only calculated everything where difference was more than $100,000. Well, probably I should only consider $10,000 or less. In that case, it's around 400K. Some whale or maybe a few are doing something like paying somebody or just faking the volume, smiley face. I don't know. It's just something for you to consider. So he had done this analysis and found these chains of transactions, which were uh, you know, only a few transactions where very, very large amounts of money were moving. And because most likely if somebody is sending a huge chunk of money in this fashion, they're not probably sending $1 million paying somebody to somebody else and then $1 million somebody to somebody else. More likely they're paying $1 million and then putting 990000 you know, back to themselves and then 10000 to the other person. So they're still doing big payments, $10,000 still a pretty good chunk of change, really. But uh, they are still, you know, it's going to overinflate the, the billions of um, the billions of cents, right? And that's very, very interesting because, well, it's possible that somebody who supports Bitcoin Cash, who is a big holder, somebody like Roger Veer or Mark Demisel, uh could, you know, they could just set it up and send to themselves a few times a day and make it look like there was, uh, you know, billions of dollars moving around when actually it was just sending to themselves. I don't really think that that's a credible or a likely scenario. And the reason for that is that one, uh, those they those investors they have Bitcoin Cash's best interest at heart, and I also think <laughs> they're mature enough to sort of understand that sending around that money. It, it's just fake. If, if they were pumping the stats up that way, then that doesn't actually help the community with the realistic info of how much money is moving on the chain. Uh, and then it also it fuds the numbers basically for themselves. So if they want to keep an eye on their investment and see what's going on, well, they wouldn't be able to as accurately tell if they knew, oh, okay, I was already uh, spamming the chain. Uh, so I think, I, I don't think that's really... Uh, likely but it it does mean that you know the big holders are perhaps moving some money around and even with these numbers of finding you know a, a billion dollars here or there of of these chains of transactions if bch is doing every single day six or seven billion or more of uh 
of cents, and we've seen here that it has been, you know, up as high as forty billion in May, and then more consistently in the ten billion uh, range this month. Then, even if one of those whales are, you know, ten percent of that volume, and we've already figured out that noise.cash is only a small slice of that volume, there's still a lot, a lot of unexplained um, volume. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of trading going on. Uh, really, there has to be. There's just no way around that, uh, really, especially when the BDC network, which, as we know, you know, has so much higher price, so much more of a recognized brand name, uh, and, you know, well, so much less reason for people to send it around, really, because uh, the fees are higher and the network is unreliable, but, you know, theoretically, more people demanding it and trading it and everything. So if that's even doing about the same amount as, uh, BCH, that's, that is just, you know, un unbelievable to me that we are really building, building some real traction here. So thank you to Simon from, uh, noise.cash and, and reese.cash for providing those, those stats. That is a very, very interesting, uh, insight. So in the news then this week, so I hadn't ever heard of this service before, but there is a site called cash2vn.com which is used for people to remit money internationally to Vietnam, which makes perfect sense, right? That's a huge use case for cryptocurrencies is being able to send money internationally because it's cheaper and faster than a international bank wire. And previously it hasn't broken through in those markets as much as it probably should have because not enough people knew about it or the ex you need to have a good exchange on both sides of the trade so that people can get their local fiat currencies if the cryptocurrencies haven't become just traded amongst the population there yet and so on and so forth. So this is something that George Donnelly talked about in the uh, episode that he was on of the, of the show that we should be trying to build these remittance flows because this is a real use case that the people are not buying cryptocurrencies to speculate here. They're doing it because they actually need the, the functionality that only cryptocurrencies can provide them. Uh, and it has a real cost advantage over a, a very, you know, difficult uh, PayPal or Western Union type of solution. And so this company, cash2vn.com, I'd never heard of them before, but they publish live stats, which update every single day of their most recent year of activity on their platform of people sending money around the world, mostly to Vietnam, but to some other countries as well. And they've got here the number of transfers by coin. Bitcoin Cash has, is now the number one coin used on their platform. So it's about 26%. Uh, so just fractionally over a quarter of all the transactions they do. And the second most common is Bitcoin, which is now under a fractionally under 25%. So Bitcoin Cash is nearly a full 1% lead there. Then Litecoin, then Ethereum, then Tether, then Dash, and then USDC coin, and then Dogecoin. So this was uh, this was amazing. When I, I'd never heard of this site before, and it just goes to show on the metrics of real utility that Bitcoin Cash is just slowly eating up. Bitcoin's advantage and it's now starting to pull ahead on these metrics and in the in the future it's going to keep keep pulling ahead right it's just it's like it just literally uh, in this last couple of weeks overtook 
Bitcoin. So it's just only got a marginal advantage, but that advantage is only going to grow over time. And the reason is very obvious because when you look on the site, they have there the fee for sending in, in any one of those coins and for Bitcoin Cash, it's, it's zero. <laughs> Uh, because the fee is so small that it's negligible, you don't even need to worry about it. And then for Bitcoin, there is a fee. And if you're just only sending a small amount, particularly, then that's going to be a big chunk of your uh, money. And if you are able to buy either Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash, and you know, it's just like, why would you pay the extra any amount of money? It doesn't really matter how much the fee is, but if it's five dollars or two dollars or fifteen dollars, it doesn't really matter. Uh, why would you pay that when you could avoid it by just using Bitcoin Cash and it would be work exactly the same, right? So I was I was thrilled by this uh, number and I you know it goes to explaining some of that cent USD uh, the volume that we're we're slowly seeing starting to build up of that that real utility and it reminded me of the BitPay stats that we've looked at on a previous episode too where Bitcoin Cash had risen uh, in this year from being in January, from being about 4% up to about in March, about 13 or 14% of the uh, coin used for, for trades on BitPay. And I've been keeping an eye on it to see if they put out their April or May numbers because I expect Bitcoin Cash to just be constantly eating away at Bitcoin's share of the pie until it becomes the dominant cryptocurrency, but they haven't updated their site yet. So we're still in suspense about that. but. These uh, cash to VN, they do very regularly update their site every single day. So you might be able to keep more of an eye on on this uh, and see how it plays out. Very interestingly, though, even though Bitcoin Cash is the most commonly used coin, it does not send the most volume, the most like USD cent effectively or Vietnamese dong cent really. That honor goes to Tether, which has nearly a third uh, and then it's followed by Bitcoin and then Litecoin, Dash and Bitcoin Cash. So Bitcoin Cash is one, two, three, four. It's the fifth uh, largest, you know, fifth contender in terms of the actual amount of money sent, which I think really shows, you know, kind of proves the point that Bitcoin Cash is used by the most people uh, for this, for the smaller sums of money. So it's a lot of, a lot of smaller sums, people doing big chunks are still pre presumably using Tether or Bitcoin because for them, the fees are not as big of an issue. But I actually think that's that's a very bullish thing also for Bitcoin Cash because if it's the most frequently used, uh, that shows that it's most useful to the most amount of people. And it's very easy for a currency to, exp to grow upwards in terms of if it has a grassroots adoption of lots of people, they will spread it to lots more people. Whereas if you only have a few people doing a couple of big trades, well, that's still only a couple of people, even if there's a lot of money going on those trades. And if Bitcoin Cash can support those small trades, then there's no reason it can't expand and, and grab the market share of those larger trades. But the opposite is not true, which is that if Bitcoin is doing the big trades, then it can't, it can't compete with Bitcoin Cash for those smaller trades. So it can only sort of lose ground over time. Very interesting that Tether is also the transfer volume with the with the largest share even bigger than Bitcoin. So maybe even though it's it's in the smaller chunks of the number of transfers, it seems like people doing really big transfers, they tend to buy uh, Tether on Ethereum uh, using ERC20 and then send it uh, that way. But because those Tethers on the ERC20, they will also have quite substantial fees. So 
that makes sense why they're not being used regularly, even if they are used for a lot of a lot of volume. So yeah, great, great work by Bitcoin Cash here. I you absolutely love to see it. This was my <laughs> my favorite news of the week. I've I've got to say. Um, then we also had uh, the second uh, Bitcoin Cash athlete. Oh, I misspelled athlete on the slide. So. Uh, Hizam Rita, who I had never heard of before, but he is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, and he has announced that he's a Bitcoin Cash sponsored athlete. So I don't know what that means. I assume that he has, um, well, I assume that he has uh, some Bitcoin Cash, obviously. So I guess that could count as being a sponsorship. But he, in this uh, post where he announced it, uh, he does have the links to bitcoin.com official. So maybe, yeah, bitcoin.com have been distributing uh, money to people. And I thought this was great just because it is that very authentic grassroots kind of movement. This is where Bitcoin Cash has a huge advantage over other cryptocurrencies as well too, is that like we've seen uh, previously this Croatian uh, tennis player, Alexandra Olyankova, she has announced that you know she's going to be repping Bitcoin Cash with her outfits on the court, so on and so forth. And now we've got Hizam Rita doing the same thing here. And that's where a cryptocurrency groundswell comes from, is it's crossover with community figures, any kind of community, you know, sports, music, art, fashion. Those are the things that, those are the industries that drive culture and mainstream brand awareness. So Bitcoin Cash has been picking up individuals in those spaces who obviously, you know, they, they get it, they figured it out. They use uh, cryptocurrency themselves and they want to rep that community. And that is absolutely amazing. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And it's a, it's a synergistic thing where those athletes support and promote Bitcoin Cash and in return, the, the community also supports them. So I'm sure if there is uh, more, you know, fights being broadcast or anything for uh, Hizam Rita, or if there's his uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu matches or, you know, things are, are being broadcast or they will be picked up and, and publicized in the Bitcoin Cash community. And, and that's great. So uh, welcome aboard. I, I, I love this. Then we've got here as well, another big, uh, well, sort of more on the same theme as well, this uh, lady, I've never heard of her either, but her name is Igil Gomez. Igil Gomez? Igil Gomez, I suppose. And she is a Venezuelan uh, TV host and kind of model influencer uh, type of person. And she posted a video on her Instagram uh, where she is kind of walking around and explaining about uh, going into a shop and buying something with Bitcoin cash. And it, it's pretty uh, cool to see because, you know, she's just outside the video is very uh, well shot. She goes into the shop and she scans the Bitcoin cash uh, QR code, which is pasted on the on the wall of the shop. And this is something that I think is is taking off in South America, but which I've not really seen this as much in other parts of the world, you know, people will tend to have a tablet or an electronic device. But in Venezuela, 
uh, and in South America. I know, again, with George Donnelly, he's talked about this in the past where they just put up the QR code on the wall. And it's very simple then because you can send to that address uh, without it being, you know, without needing a tablet and, and all that managed by the employees. There's just the addresses there and you just send to that same address. Uh, but I hadn't said what I didn't know about this was they can send to that address and then they just show the shopkeeper the confirmation on their own phone to see look I've, I've sent the payment so then the store clerk can see yep obviously you did send the money to us they don't need to be connected to their own wi-fi or watching their own tablet at all and so this is a venezuela uh, in influencer she, she has one hundred and eighty-seven thousand instagram followers so south america and uh where there's already been quite a lot of bitcoin cash adoption uh, due to problems with the local currencies particularly in venezuela and in argentina that kind of word getting out there is just absolutely enormous and to me shows that that cryptocurrency is well and truly on the way to to mainstream and and people do people do follow influencers that's why they're called influencers that's literally the whole gig so uh, if, if, if she's promoting that, I'm sure others will be, be following soon and, and just making it cool and trendy and sort of acceptable and just normal, really, uh, to be involved in, in crypto in that way and just showing so many people how to be involved. Uh, it's absolutely amazing, really, really amazing. So in contrast to these fortunes of Bitcoin Cash with the athletes and the Insta, you know, Instagram posts on and so forth. We've got other big crypto news of the week, which is El Salvador, the tiny island country adopting BTC Bitcoin as legal tender. So this, the president of this country, who I don't really know much about, to be honest, Naib Jukeli, he has declared that everybody in his country and it's been signed into legislation must accept Bitcoin as legal tender. So this is a this is a little bit of a strange one because it kind of runs opposite to what I was just saying before about uh, a cryptocurrency movement essentially wants to start from the ground up. It wants individuals who are passionate about the project and who are willing to trade in an economy, that's all it is. You're trading with other people, right? So it's up to those individuals if they want to trade with you and what currency they want to use, right? So that's what that's really where you want to create your user base. But in this case of, of BDC, instead it's coming, it's the opposite of, of the true sort of cryptocurrency ethos, which instead of being a ground up movement, you know, for the people, by the people, instead it's coming by decree from the government which is really not that much of a departure from when fiat currency comes from the government by decree either. So, I've, you know, I mean, obviously this is a good thing for cryptocurrency in the sense that it's now true that a currency, you know, a crypto has been made legal tender in a current in a country, even if it is a small, tiny little country that doesn't have that much prominence on the international stage. But you know, from little things, big things grow, right? That's another cryptocurrency classic. So in that sense, uh, it's a great thing. It is kind of a bit off brand in the sense that 
it's coming from the top-down mandate um, for you know to the people that they should or that they could at least use Bitcoin. And the other th aspect about it is that the government was going to be sort of offering some kind of service where people could convert into US dollars uh, via using Lightning Network payments on this app called Strike. So I have not used this app, so I'm definitely not an expert in it, but Strike, which is on the Lightning, is a custodial service, I believe, on the Lightning Network, which again is not already a layer removed from the actual Bitcoin BTC blockchain, um, and then can sort of cash people out in, in USD tethers. So this seems like just so many layers of indirection in the sense that a big... Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of room for problems here, where Tether is, you know, potentially a bit of a scam, uh, and El Salvador already does not have its own currency; it uses the U.S. dollar. And so, in adding all this crypto legislation, all this Bitcoin BTC acceptance, if it's all going to be done with Lightning Network and Strike, well, then they're just putting themselves in a position where Strike can start controlling their economy because people will not be trading directly on the blockchain like they would be in the case with Aguil Gomez and people trading BCH in Venezuela where that is authentic cryptocurrency being traded directly on chain. Instead in this BDC case they're going to be trading via these custodial apps and services so the country might find itself at the mercy of of those uh, providers if, if, um, if things take a turn for the worse. But nevertheless, of course, this was still heavily celebrated in the Bitcoin BDC community because this is where they're trying to get their wins. They're not trying to get their wins with ground up uh, community driven, you know, marketing or trade, but with top down banks and institutions and, and governments sort of co-opting it or agreeing to, you know, uh, be, be involved. So. Yeah, mixed, mixed feelings about this one. Uh, definitely a good thing for crypto, but I think if a, any substantial amount of people in the country start trying to trade via the Lightning Network, that they might run into more problems that they're expecting. And if Tether goes bust and there's a big uh, problems in the crypto to USD uh, markets via via Tether, then, then that's probably not going to end that well for them. But... We'll wait and see, and certainly it puts the pressure on other countries to be, you know, getting in the arena a little bit with uh, cryptocurrency because the dominoes are certainly starting to fall. And then we've got <laughs> this. <laughs> this one's uh, this one's just a bit of a, a personal uh, enjoyment here. But I had a tweet. I think I talked about it on a previous episode, but in much the same sense that I was just talking about that the Bitcoin BDC community are now, you know, all in on, on teaming up with the banks and the governments and the big institutions that they used to be fighting against and which the Bitcoin cash community still is trying to defund. You have this uh, picture of uh, Anthony Pompliano, who I've mentioned before on the show, he's a big figure in the Bitcoin BDC uh, community. Uh, and often hypes up the price and everything like that. And he posted this picture of himself with a visa, uh, you know, it must be some kind of fancy visa payments card or something like that. And it's got 
because it's black, it looks really, you know, like uh, elite tier credit card or whatever it is. And it's got the Bitcoin symbol on it. So there must be some sort of visa tie in that they're, you know, accepting Bitcoin and so on and so forth. Uh, and he just has the most dead look in his eyes. He doesn't even really look that excited, even though, of course, he's trying to say, wow, how great this is in his Twitter post. He just, he looks like the soul has gone out of him. Uh, and the comment uh, from on Twitter was from BitFaced was, this is the look of a man who has sold out to bankers, hashtag BCH for the win. And I think that really just sums it up. Like I, if you rolled back in time, six or seven years and you showed the bitcoiners of of that day you know this is the future that you will have bitcoin people sort of with the dead-eyed look celebrating that they were now on a v they could now use a visa mastercard to pay with bitcoin it's like a complete co-opting of the whole idea if you're using your visa card to pay with bitcoin you just missed the whole point since the whole point of bitcoin is you just pay with the bitcoin directly you don't you don't even need visa but that community that's that's the way they've got that's the way they've gone they've got el salvador and they've got their visa debit mastercards but it's certainly not really seeming to be changing the the world of payments anymore so uh on that on that note uh, as i said for the theme of this episode was to have a look at a, a couple of external perspectives to the Bitcoin Cash community because obviously I'm very biased and the people we have on this show uh, largely uh, are big Bitcoin Cash fans. So uh, in those regards, maybe we're not going to do the best job of pointing out some some flaws in the scene. So I thought it would be interesting to take a look at some representatives from outside the community, especially the BTC and the Ethereum community, which are the, the biggest cryptocurrency communities as to their thoughts on Bitcoin Cash and where it's at. So from the BDC side, I just have one clip here from this guy, Dan Held, who is a big voice in the in the BDC community. He did an interview with Blockworks called The Super Cycle Will Push Bitcoin Above $500,000. And I don't uh, agree with his analysis in, in that sense where, he, I mean, he is himself very forthright that this is just a theory. It's not uh, a locked in prediction that he is making but he kind of has this idea that this latest Bitcoin bull run will be more powerful or potentially just, uh, you know, dwarf the size of the previous, you know, uh, booms in the Bitcoin price because now institutions and governments like with El Salvador and so on are starting to flood in and that there will just be a critical mass at which the whole world sort of starts to wake up that crypto is the future and everybody will, will run into... Bitcoin BDC, I think he's on the right track in the sense that I agree with him. We are pretty rapidly moving towards a sort of critical amount of mind share and acceptance by the population um, and by people who are in governments and, and big institutions that this is going to take over and it is inevitable. Where I don't agree with him is that they're going to all choose Bitcoin BDC, which is the large you know, premise of his his philosophy and he doesn't really give as much credence to Ethereum or to other uh, alternatives like Bitcoin Cash or, or any others. So let's just, let's just hear what he has to say. The whole interview is actually really good. So I do recommend everybody to watch uh, the full uh, interview and, and make up your own mind. I mean, there are parts of it that I agree with. A lot of it is really good. 
parts of it that I disagree with. Uh, but for the sake of this show, we're just going to take a look at the one segment where he does uh, very briefly touch on touch on Bitcoin Cash and see what his thoughts were there. So, mind with the micro and macro cycles, and then also narratives. So, like. Bitcoin in 2017 was fighting the Bitcoin Cash narrative that Bitcoin was supposed to be useful for payments, which split the community up into Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoiners. Um, Bitcoin Cash was crushed, and Bitcoin is the only remaining narrative. But there's also a narrative back then, too, of the ETH flipping, that like ETH would flip in Bitcoin. And then there- all right, so just quickly to address that before we get onto the Ethereum part, I mean, that that's really all he says about it. And it is very interesting to me that to say, you know, so you can sort of see that from the BTC side of the fence, they they think it's over. They think it's done. They think Bitcoin Cash is gone and it's never coming back. And that sort of makes sense because if you're looking at the coin market cap rankings and you're focused on Bitcoin as number one, and then you just see all of them, you know, Bitcoin Cash is down 12, 13, forgotten about it. Like the market has proven that it's over and that it's irrelevant and that that's the end of the story. And it's just, it's, well, it's just wrong, <laughs> you know, like we just saw is Venezuelan Instagram influencer is tweeting out to 187,000 people about Bitcoin Cash. I'm doing this podcast, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people interested in, in Bitcoin Cash. The, the war is not won and over, but it seems to the Bitcoin BTC community that, that they have won and that Bitcoin Cash is just these small, irrelevant people who are never, never coming back. And that's, you know, that kind of makes sense, I, I guess, from, but it is a little bit, it's, it's a basically a bit arrogant, you know, it's a bit kind of overbearing that they don't consider, not even that they don't looking to see in the Bitcoin Cash community, are there innovations there that they can copy or is there something of value happening that they could learn from or nothing they they've just completely wiped it from their memory and just thought it's gone and it's irrelevant and this is why it's such a big part of my philosophy that when the sort of flipping really gets rolling and if bitcoin cash just surges up to uh, replace bitcoin that it's going to catch these bitcoin btc community members so so massively by surprise because in their mind, that's not even a, a rare chance possibility or something they should keep an eye on. To them, it's never going to happen. It's finished. It's over. And it's just so strange. And I think another part that leads them to this kind of confidence is the fact that for the Bitcoin Cash payments uh, scene, we are fighting a, a sort of a bigger battle in that if the Bitcoin community have resigned themselves to, okay, we're going to team up with Visa and MasterCard to piggyback on their infrastructure to do payments and people are not even going to use Bitcoin to transact in regular commerce. Well, it's much easier to convince people to get a Coinbase account, buy some and just sit on it and do nothing and hope to get rich than it is to get a business to find another business and both of them to want to use Bitcoin Cash and to start trading it, right? But you can see the difference in that philosophy in the graphs that we were looking at before with the daily cent USD, where recently, you know, uh, 
Bitcoin has been doing about Bitcoin BTC has been doing about 10 billion. Bitcoin Cash has been doing just about nearly 10 billion, right? The price is 63 to one, but the amount of actual activity happening on the chain is equivalent. And the reason is that the Bitcoin Cash community, that is the philosophy for it to be an actual tradable currency. It's, there's no point having digital pec rocks that you put in, um, in a vault and you just hope that that's, that's enough, that it would just be valuable just because it's static or, or something like, again, people can watch the full interview with Dan Hell and he does do a good job. Of, he is correct when he gives explanations that one of the things that Bitcoin has going for it is that if it's kind of static uh, and it's not uh, innovating, it's not changing its code base, it's slowly building up trust over time that you can't, you can't fake or you can't code into any kind of new coin the, the stability of having been around for 10 years because people aren't going to believe something is solid if it's only been around for five minutes as compared to 10 years. And that's correct. But where I disagree with him is firstly that he says that it's a store of value and that's all the utility it needs. I mean, that's missing the point that for something to store value, you have to be able to cash it in at some point. You, you only store value to spend it later. You don't just store value until you die or I guess some people do because they pass it on to their children but you don't store value forever eventually you need to expend that value to uh, get something from someone else and in doing so at that point you're making a trade and so the most uh, commonly stored asset will be the one that has the best future prospects for being able to be traded that's how you know gold became uh, a heavily traded medium of exchange because People could see that it was durable across time, so it did have that history. Uh, so that longevity and, and durability is quite important. But also that people knew that they would be able to trade it for someone in, in the future, right? That trading aspect was, was critical. And if Bitcoin BDC is designed to be less and less tradable over time because it's static, they're not looking to increase their scaling capacity and they're just hoping that second layer solutions will fix everything, then ultimately nobody will want to store their value in it. People don't, even with gold now, majority of the world doesn't store their wealth in, in gold. A few banks do, a few um, you know, governments do, but the majority of people, real people doing trades every day, they store their value in dollars or in euros or in yen or whatever they use to, to transact among themselves because that's the whole point. It's the whole point of money is that is that you can trade it. So really you want to have the most tradable currency and then on top of that add the fact that it's long lasting and builds confidence rather than having the most long lasting and confidence and having the trading be a, be a secondary aspect. So we do definitely disagree uh, on that interpretation, but I just find it fascinating that, that he thinks Bitcoin Cash is just the narrative the narrative, as he puts it, has been relegated to the side and is gone completely. That's not true. It's just that the narrative has moved outside of his attention, outside of his sphere influence. And because a lot of it is happening in the non-English speaking world, as we saw earlier with the um, with the Venezuelan influences, right? And uh, Bitcoin Cash is most useful in parts of the world that are not primarily English speaking, you know, like in South America, in parts of Southeast Asia, uh, in poorer parts of, of Africa, 
where I mean a lot of them uh, English is is well spoken or a lot of these places but the if you are an English speaker it's a very common thing for people especially people who don't speak a second language so I have no idea about Dan Held whether he does or doesn't uh, speak another language but for people who don't speak a second language they often discount how much conversation is going on in the world that is not in English or which wouldn't appear on their Twitter feed or in their circle of people that they know or wouldn't be uh, picked up on and so I think I think that's a large blind spot for the the Bitcoin BTC crowd and that that quiet gathering of, of momentum is just going to you know surge out of uh, out of nowhere that they're they're not expecting it's not something you can replicate overnight and it's not something that is necessarily super highly uh, publicized at this point so let's ha- let's just have a listen to a bit more of what Dan Held has to say narrative has faded away um, Bitcoin Cash was crushed, and Bitcoin is the only remaining narrative. But there's also a narrative back then too of the ETH flipping, that like ETH would flip in Bitcoin, and that narrative has faded away. It has risen a little bit recently, but I don't find it to be a, a valid narrative. I don't think ETH competes at all as a store of value versus Bitcoin. It's more like an oil. It's more like a utility, right? So um, I think we have perfect narrative market fit for Bitcoin, and that narrative is understandable by anyone. And that narrative has a ton of content around it. So Bitcoin's, uh, you know, before like when... Right, so then he goes off into a whole uh, other sort of topic. But very interesting, again, to see here that where the Bitcoin BDC competes with Bitcoin BCH quite directly, so he can sort of justify in his mind that Bitcoin uh, BDC... Uh, is the dominant one and has become the store of value in BCH with its idea of payments that's sort of irrelevant with Ethereum because Ethereum has been rising up also against uh, BCH and has been chipping away at its market dominance and you know over time it has been rising against uh, BDC because the community have been more innovative and more proactive. Uh, He sort of has to put them in a separate category. He has to say okay they're like the oil and all this kind of reasoning by analogy, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, you can say, okay, well, in the real world, there's gold, which is used to store value, and oil, which is used, uh, you know, for machinery and so on and so forth. People don't store their value in oil, except that they kind of do, you know. Uh, I'm sure big, large uh, companies in Saudi Arabia, I'm sure they're pretty happy to sit on their barrels of oil uh, as, you know, storing their, their wealth that they can cash in later. But this kind of thinking about things as related to these existing concepts in the market doesn't make sense because neither of those things are are cryptocurrencies, right? It's very sort of lazy reasoning to just uh, think because those things work that way that that's the way cryptocurrencies work. Cryptocurrencies are a completely different asset class and money is a completely different thing to, you know, (laughs) gold versus versus oil. Um, So... Yeah, I don't, I don't think that sort of reasoning by analogy uh, really holds up because if Ethereum was more useful and more traded and more whatever, then there's no reason it couldn't... Well, there are some reasons which uh, he does touch on in this podcast which are correct that the problem Ethereum has is that they change the parameters of their network too much. They're too innovative or too willing to move things around and as a result, people can't trust that for the long term they're going to have a stable monetary policy uh, which BDC and BCH do. So he is 
is correct about that. But still, this idea of Ethereum is just the oil, and therefore they can sort of discount if it is rising up in prominence uh, versus versus BTC is kind of you know very interesting. So BCH is irrelevant, but then Ethereum, which is by those same token, is is not irrelevant. Well, that can be you know sectioned off into another uh, into another uh, another rationalization really and uh, from a bitcoin perspective in the 2013 2014 2015 era if bitcoin was dropping in dominance if it was less than 95 90% that's when the alarm bells started ringing that they wouldn't the community was not innovating or it was not um, fulfilling the mantra of cryptocurrencies and losing market share to competitors but that's kind of fallen away now because the bitcoin bdc refuse to scale and refuse to maintain uh, traction as the most useful cryptocurrency. And so now they're sort of starting to uh, rationalize away how their value is just bleeding into everything else and, and feeling that they are still unique uh, in that space when really they could be replaced by Bitcoin Cash and nobody would really be all that uh, sad or worse off for it, except for the, <laughs> except for the Bitcoin BDC holders, of course. Right, so then we have a completely separate and uh, different take on, on BCH coming from Vitalik Buterin, who is, of course, the co-founder of Ethereum and has been in the crypto space, you know, a very uh, long time. And uh, he went on the Lex Friedman podcast, a great, great podcast, and this is his second uh, appearance on it on the 3rd of June, so quite uh, recently. And he, he let's listen to his... Uh, takes on they sort of go more into depth about the whole uh, Bitcoin and BCH split and and how everything came came about there. You actually tweeted something about uh, mm-hmm. people are saying that Vitalik changed his mind about the in he mm-hmm. he went from being a s- small. No, I went from to, being big to small. Is it big to small? To them. And uh, but you said I've been a medium. Mm-hmm. blocker all along so maybe you can also comment on on where on the very basic aspect before we even get to sharding of where sure. you stand on this block size debate sure so the way that i think about the trade-off is i think about it as a trade-off between making it easy to write to the blockchain and making it easy to read the blockchain right so when i say read i just mean you know have a node and actually verify it and make sure that it's correct and all of those things and then by write i mean send transactions so I, I think for decentralization, it's it's important for both of these tasks to be accessible. And I think that they're like about equally important, right? If you have a chain that's too expensive to read, then everyone will just trust a few people to like read for them. And then those people can change the rules without anyone else's permission. But if, on the other hand, it becomes really expensive to write, then everyone will move on to se- like basically second layer systems that are incredibly centralized. And like that takes away from you know decentralization and self sovereignty as well. So, so yeah, that that's basically essentially one hundred percent correct. You know, I agree with uh, Vitalik. Uh, all of his points. We'll see. I in general, I agree with him a lot more than than with Dan Held. I'd never heard it described as being a trade off between reading and writing. That's obviously a very software engineer way of of thinking about it. But I do tend to think of it in the ways that. He says that it is a uh, it's a trade off between your sort of decentralization of nodes and verification of the network versus how many end users effectively you can support, which is really what 
number of transactions is about. The more transactions is ultimately more people. And that's what's quite important because the more end users, the more real economic agents, the more real people you have involved, the more powerful your network effect grows because everybody talks, that's one factor, and everybody trades, that's another factor. So the more people, the better. And so in the Bitcoin Cash philosophy, trading off a little bit of how many nodes you have to get a massive increase in the amount of uh, number of transactions and end users is an easy uh, trade. But uh, as, as Vitalik is sort of saying there, there is that kind of uh, trade-off and, and we'll hear his thoughts on, on the balance in a second. Well, this has been my viewpoint like pretty much the whole time, right? It's that like, you know, you need this balance and going in one direction or the other direction is very unhealthy. In the Bitcoin case, um, basically what happens was that Bitcoin originally, like at the very beginning, it didn't really have a block size. It just had an accidental block size of 32 meg or, or block size limit of 32 megabytes because that just happens to be the limit of the, the peer to peer messages. Um, but oh, then, interesting. I didn't even know that part. <laughs> yeah. But then um, Satoshi back in 2010 was worried that even 32 megabyte blocks would be too hard to process. So he uh, put the limit down to one megabyte. And, you know, I think the. If I put, you mean sneaked in there? Yeah, just like made an update to the Bitcoin software that made blocks bigger than one, I think it's a million bytes um, invalid. And I think the impression that most people had at the time is that, you know, this is just a temporary safety measure. And over time, you know, the, as we become more confident in the software, that limit would be and like raised some, uh, so, somewhat. Um, but but then when the actual usage of the blockchain started going up and then it started going up first to 100 kilobytes per block, then to 250 kilobytes per block, then to 500 kilobytes per block, um, you know, there started a kind of coming out of the, the woodworks, this opinion that like, no, that limit should just not be increased. And, and you know, this is pretty accurate. So definitely uh, what he's saying is correct, that people definitely thought that it was going to be raised. And the reason was because Satoshi before he left even made posts saying uh look when it comes to that we can just uh you know raise the limit look here's a quick example pseudocode of how we could do it so just get on with it and then i like vitalik's choice of phrase here that the coming out of the woodwork that's exactly what it was like where nobody there was this opinion was not sort of widely held or Something, but it just sort of started seeping in all over the place that people started sort of saying that still a minority, but they just kind of came out of nowhere when there was no previous, um, you know, question even about this uh, limit being raised. Then there are all of these attempts at compromising, right? Um, you know, first there was like a proposal for 20 megabyte blocks. Then there was the 248 proposal, which is um, a bit ironic because the 248 proposal started off being a, like a small block negotiating position. But mm -hmm. then when the big block people came back and said like, hey, why aren't, aren't we, aren't we going to do this? They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want, we don't want the block size increases anymore. Uh, so, you know, there were these two different positions, right? The small blockers, I think they valued one megabyte blocks for two reasons. One is that they just like really, really believe in the importance of uh, being able to read the chain. But two is that a lot of them really believe in, in maintaining this norm of never hard forking, right? right. So yeah, we're gonna get into, uh, this leads into a very interesting discussion by Vitalik, but he is, he is correct 
uh, about that as well too, that it was very strange when the initial momentum was, okay, we're going to raise the blocks. And like he says, it was going to be sort of 20 megabyte blocks. And then I think somebody talked about eight megabyte blocks. And then it was, okay, what about if we do a slowly increasing two, four, eight megabyte blocks? And then it even came down to what if we just do two megabyte blocks? And then what if we do two megabytes plus SegWit? And then in the end of the day, it ended up being just SegWit and no, <laughs> no block size increase, right? So the goalposts were constantly shifted on the small side down to smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually it just became no increase at all, which was the whole reason that Bitcoin Cash split off, right? The community did try everything, you know, they did try and negotiate at every reasonable point as to a, a, an increase and then a smaller increase and then a smaller increase and a smaller increase just to see that the sky wasn't going to fall over, okay? Maybe there was some people who had legitimate doubts that this was going to be a problem or something. But because there's no data about this, because this is a pioneering cryptocurrency, especially at the time, the idea of even just raising it from one megabyte to two megabyte and just getting some more data on did the sky fall or not, from the small block side, that that was it was just constant delays of trying to... Um, you know, say, oh, no, no, no. They always just set the goalposts smaller and smaller. And then when the big blockers kind of met them on their side of the fence and said, okay, cool, let's do that. Uh, we'll, do, we'll do it your way then. But we'll get an increase, but we'll do it how, how you are comfortable with doing it. Then they just move the goalposts smaller and smaller again until it moved into into nothing. But then here, uh, Vitalik is going to get into a very interesting uh, distinction about the soft versus hard forks as well too. So... The difference between a hard fork and a soft fork is basically that in a soft fork, um, blocks that were any block that's valid under the new rules was still valid under the old rules. So if you have a client that verifies according to the old rules, then you'll still be able to accept the chain that follows the new rules. Whereas with a hard fork, like you have to update your code in order to stay on the chain. Mm -hmm. And look, they have this belief that you know soft forks are kind of either less coercive than hard forks, which by the way, I completely disagree with. Um, I actually think soft forks are more coercive because like basically they force everyone who disagrees to sort of go along by default. Um, but, or they have this um, opinion that um, there's like, it's more difficult to abuse soft forks to do really mean things like, or that like completely violate people's expectations, like increasing the supply, which is like, you know, there, there, I think there is some truth to that. Um, so because of, you know, these reasons, they just say, we're only going to do soft forks and we're, we don't, we want to just not do any hard forks. And so, yeah, this is also hundred percent correct by Vitalik. And one interesting thing to note here is that the BDC community, because of this strong aversion, which originally was, uh, yeah, again, maybe came down to some of this philosophy about whether it's coercive or not, uh, they have kind of put themselves into a corner where. Uh, in the previously to any of this debate, hard forks in, in Bitcoin BDC were not were not controversial. It had been done before. It had been successfully pulled off before at a couple of, you know, when there'd been a, a couple of key moments of, uh, you know, contention or whatever that they'd been done. And then as the whole narrative degenerated into this dispute over what was in consensus or not, anybody hard forking off was sort of slandered on this side as being you're fighting against consensus obviously you don't have consensus if you're doing a hard fork and that's that's 
true and not true. It's not true in the sense that there'd been hard forks done before where everyone on the same page was on the same page and there was not going to be a community split over it. But then in this case, it seemed that there was going to be a community split, but the big block side kind of felt like, well, this we've done hard forks before. Sometimes that's just what you've, what you've got to do. And it did become the ultimate protest uh, at this frustration with the continual uh, battering down of the of the the big block size in terms of okay we're gonna have smaller and smaller blocks until eventually we're just not gonna have any blocks and as they say in silicon valley there's two options when you don't like something voice and exit you can complain or you can leave and if you've done complaining and you've tried negotiating and discussing enough times and that doesn't work eventually you've got to leave and that was what they ended up uh picking but as a result now on the bdc side because the narrative was that small, uh, you know, soft forks was the only way to do things. They have now cornered themselves in that if they need to make substantial changes, like if they decided ever that they wanted to raise the block size limit or that they wanted to make some other kind of more ambitious change, they wouldn't be able to do it because their own community resistance would be so high to the idea of ever, ever doing a hard fork. And they would probably largely forget how to handle that process of, of making a substantial upgrade to that network. So in the Dan Held uh, mentality, if you go and watch his uh, video that I linked, you'll see that that's a good thing because it means that the network essentially doesn't change very much, uh, which you know can promote investor confidence in one way. But it also means that inevitably in a cryptocurrency market where a lot of networks are innovating and upgrading, you could also be left behind and he thinks that that trust and confidence from the stability outweighs the innovation and I, th I would say that there's more of a middle ground there where you can have a small amount of innovation or innovation on some features that don't impact the core proposition uh, and kind of get the the best of, of both worlds. They eventually discovered this idea called segregated witness that allows for like a very tiny block size increase to like the equivalent of about two megabytes um, with a soft fork. It's it's just really like weird and devious trick. Like basically what they do is they take the signatures of transactions and then they put them outside of the block. And then they add an extra rule that says that like every, for a block to be valid, the block has to come with a separate, like basically extension block that contains all of the transaction signatures, right? So, you know, when you measure it according to the old rules, like, you know, hey, it adds up to less than a million, but actually there's this extension block that the old protocol doesn't even know about. So- It's a hack that, that seemed to work to do in a small way extend exactly. the size of the block size. But so, you know, the small block side was like happy with these very low levels of block size. And then the big block side wanted to expand to, you know, at the very least go to four megabytes, then, you know, maybe go maybe eight, 20. There, there's disagreements within there as well. Um, I definitely was uh, favoring the big side um, the whole way through, as uh, you can probably tell. Um, but even though, so the argument against the big is that uh, it uh, makes things more centralized. Yes, because fewer people can run a node that verifies yes. the chain, and also because any of these things would require a hard fork, and you know, hard forks are inherently risky. Do you think there's truth to that? Um, I'm pro hard fork. I think hard forks are actually like in a yeah, you know political economic sense, they're better than soft forks. So yeah, we see here, obviously, that Vitalik says, yeah, I was on the big block side. And so it was a lot of people, and ultimately he ended up uh, you know, he was already doing Ethereum at that time and he was able to sort of expand uh, the 
the block limit and not have that be an issue on the Ethereum network. So that subsequently proved that there was merit to those ideas and it didn't immediately cause the calamity that uh, the small block side of Bitcoin thought there would be. But there was so many people at that time who were very, very ingrained in the Bitcoin BTC community, uh, which was the only community, the Bitcoin community, who then left to other projects, right? So like myself, like Vitalik, or, or like hundreds of other people, right? Roger Ver, or thousands really of, of people. And all those people were then split off into all those different currencies, which meant that the entire cryptocurrency movement lost a lot of momentum. In the long run, I think it's been beneficial because now there's more room in the market for experimentation and all these different alternatives um, have been able to compete on their own merits. And ultimately, the stupid decisions on the Bitcoin BDC chain will be minimized as they have their problems and they you know fade off into their own little corner because other communities can and have been able to improve on that uh model but as you can see in the end people such as uh, vitalik or, or myself had to move into an alternative because there was just all the people who supported big blocks agreed that some something different had to be done but because Bitcoin BDC, the small blocks had the status quo on their side, they were able to sort of maintain that cohesive momentum, whereas the big block side sort of had fragmented after, after it ended up uh, splitting off slash moving into other crypto chains. Um, well, let's, okay, okay, I think that's a beautiful <laughs> principle as stated that soft forks may be more coercive than hard forks. Mm -hmm. This this is not just about cryptocurrency. This is about mm. politics and life. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. So mm -hmm. you're okay with hard forks. In yes. fact, you think hard forks is the right way to make changes mm -hmm. because then everybody's forced to make a decision. Right. Do you accept this change or not as opposed mm -hmm. to ideas being sneaked in behind the door and, you're, and the decision is mm -hmm. forced on you? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, but you know, hard fork, some people say, this is when they talk about sort of Ethereum, mm. is there's some aspect of a hard fork where you're trying to upgrade a, what is it, airplane while it's flying. And uh, I think soft forks are also upgrading an airplane while it's flying. But it's a smaller upgrades. That's, you know, like there's some truth to that. Like yeah. there, there's definitely, um, there's definitely a bit more risk of like a, a split as a result of a hard fork than as a result of a soft fork. Um, and the split is highly undesirable, right? Well, it depends. Like if it's a split because of a bug, then that's horrible. If it's a split as a result of political differences, then I think like a split is better than, you know, one side being forced to basically just like suck it up and, ac and accept the majority position, even if it really hates it. So yeah, this sort of gets into the philosophy but it is one of the genius things about cryptocurrency that being open source software anybody is free to do these hard forks anybody can just split off and and do it their own way and i've talked about some of the forks on this podcast before but as far as bitcoin cash goes because they were the community that forked away from BTC, it always maintained more that philosophy that if you disagree that's fine i mean it's not the end of the world if you disagree you've got a different opinion that's fine but you've sort of got to prove it by forking off. And uh, we're going to see some discussions here in a second about those later forks with uh, Bitcoin SV forking off and, and Bitcoin uh, Cash ABC forking off as, as well too. But I think it's very healthy 
even though in the short term it was quite damaging for the Bitcoin Cash community. In the long term, it's, it's quite healthy, uh, as, as Vitalik is kind of talking about here, to maintain that culture where people who, who disagree can, can leave and do their own thing. And if they can attract uh, merits or, or take the project in their own direction, that's good. And then the ones who, who agree with the current direction, they can, they can stay with that and everyone's happy. So I think it is very helpful to, very healthy uh, to have that, that mindset as opposed to the soft fork uh, mindset where everybody is forced to all stay under one banner and the minority opinion just gets told to sort of deal with it. Well, there's also political connections throughout the history of the United States. It's like sometimes groups of people that strongly disagree with each other mm -hmm. should be forced to work it out. Even if they, even when a split seems like an easy thing in the short term, it depends. And I think, like, well, for blockchains in particular, the costs of uh, people being able to like peacefully do their go off and do their own thing are much lower, right? Like, you know, okay, if you have a country and you have two groups, then uh, like often enough, like f fighting out the new rules requires, you know, a civil war requires yeah. everyone to move and so forth. But no, on, on a blockchain, like, you know, the costs are lower, and so. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look at the way things worked out with the block size wars, mm -hmm. and there was a split, mm. what is it, Bitcoin Cash? And, and Bitcoin. This, yeah. Mm. Uh, would you, like you looking, putting on your historian hat, you mentioned offline you like Dan Carlin. So if, if Dan Carlin were to do an episode on the, uh, <laughs> on the block size wars, uh, do you think uh, it could have turned out better? Or do you, um, are you okay with the way it turned out? I'm definitely disappointed with what happened with the block with the the big block side. Um, I think the source of my disappointment is that like one of the things that you notice when just looking at like this political disagreements generally, especially when you have environments where you know they're authoritarian or like single party dominated, and then there's some opposition party, and the opposition often has like very legitimate grievances. But at the same time, the thing you notice is that often enough, the opposition just sucks, right? Like it just doesn't have you know political capacity. It doesn't have like the ability to come up with policy because its entire culture is like designed around resisting much more than it's designed around like you know actually debating serious policy trade-offs and i i worry or i guess not so much worry because it's already happened i uh, unfortunately think that bitcoin cash ended up being a victim of this right like um first you no know, there was a split with right so this is a great point by uh, vitalik and we come down slightly differently on this but he, he is right that, like I was saying, where the, the majority or the status quo, they have the benefit of maintaining the momentum that they had. And the opposition side, like he's saying, they suffer from the fact that they might all agree that they don't want to do the main thing, but they might disagree about what should be done instead. So in that way, it's going to be much more fragmented and much more of a rallying cry or much harder of a rallying cry because after you've split off, well, then it becomes not a question of everyone can agree, not this. We need an alternative, but then are the options B or C or D, what should be done instead, right? And so Bitcoin Cash did absolutely uh, fall prey to that. And in the short term, and even uh, you know, ongoing to this day, it still suffers a bit of a hangover of people in the uh, Bitcoin Cash community trying to define it relative to Bitcoin and sort of seeing them... Uh, in, in light of each other, like it, obviously I've done that in this episode, right? 
But I think increasingly we're, we're really starting to see as the Bitcoin BDC community have solidified into their gold and their store of value narrative, like we uh, heard uh, Dan Held talking about before, increasingly that the Bitcoin Cash community have done the opposite where they've solidified into their, it's got to be payments and it's got to be useful and, and all those kind of things. So it is forging its own identity. And as time goes on, the community of the two uh, in terms of their messaging, in terms of the content produced around them, uh, in terms of the reasons that people invest or the businesses or services uh, that get involved and, and use them regularly become more and more distinct. And I think that that's a very slow and arduous <laughs> process, but I think it's accelerating all the time. And I really feel like at this point, the Bitcoin Cash community is more distinct and different from the Bitcoin community than it has ever been, that those gaps are only widening. And as time goes on, I can only see that gap getting wider as the Bitcoin Cash mission gets clearer and as Bitcoin BTC follows off onto its, onto its own um, path. So in that respect, I agree with Vitalik that, Vitalik that it was unfortunate that this was kind of the way that it went down. And I guess he sort of uh, gave up a little bit on, on seeing that solid uh, alternative emerge. But I, I think he also knows that if, if, it starts, if it starts to coalesce, if Bitcoin Cash really starts putting up uh, a strong argument, which in my mind they are starting to do it and we'll see increasingly over the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months, people such as himself or other, you know, ex-Bitcoiners who always liked the idea of that big block uh, approach, seeing it realized, I think will will draw a lot of, a lot of confidence back and, and you will see community support from these influential crypto figures if Bitcoin Cash can prove that it can stand on its own two feet. Bitcoin Cash. And then, of course, Craig Wright came in. And, you know, Craig Wright was uh, this uh, basically scammer who just keeps on pretending that he is Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of uh, Bitcoin. Hey, Craig Wright's legal team, do you hear me? Yes, I still think your client is a scammer. So sue me. This is definitely going to be depth first search because I got to ask you about Craig. Because these people have been contacting me and I'm trying to figure out, like, what is up with this human being? So for people who don't know, there's somebody who is... <laughs> Let's start. There's Satoshi Nakamoto, who is the creator of Bitcoin, who's anonymous. Uh -huh. And actually, most really big people in the cryptocurrency space do not, like like yourself and others, do not dare claim that they are, even for fun, Satoshi Nakamoto. In fact, if Satoshi Nakamoto is still alive and is, like, if, say, you were Satoshi Nakamoto, it seems like the thing he would do is probably, or she, is uh, try to remain anonymous. On the flip side of that, there's a guy named Craig Wright who continually keeps claiming that he is, in fact, Satoshi Nakamoto and keeps suing a lot of people. <laughs> so uh, on, on him, if we could just linger on him, what do you make of this character? Uh, is, what, what are we mm -hmm. supposed to make of this character? Should he be ignored? Is there any possible truth to his claims? Um, what do you make of him? The, the analogy that's at the, at the top of my head will get a bit political, but um, oh that's fine. You've had Michael Ballas. Um, <laughs> so um, I guess I view Craig Wright as being kind of like a Donald Trump figure yes. in that like, he's not very intellectual, um, but I think he gets a big audience because he says – he, he says things that like play to the resentments that people have, and he says things that uh, people want to hear. 
right? Like in the in the wake of this block size war, you know, the big blockers did feel very disenchanted. Like they felt that, you know, Bitcoin always had this vision that we were supposed to just keep increasing the block size and Bitcoin is peer-to-peer cash. It says so in the white paper. And then this gr- this elitist clique of core devs just like came in and said, you know, no, 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 we're going to impose this totally different vision. And if you ever want your scalability, you'll have to wait for us to create this, this totally unproven fancy technology called the Lightning Network that works under completely different principles. And, you know, they were very angry at this. And I mean, I think like, I think a lot of that anger is justified. Um, but at the same time, you know, when people are in that mental state, like it's very easy for you to just kind of like latch on. And if you find someone who expresses anger at the same things that you're angry at, and also like seems like someone who's strong and seems like someone who, you know, might be good to rally around, it's very easy to just like get behind that. But that extra part, yeah, so I completely agree with uh, Vitalik on this point too, really, is he, he nailed it that when Bitcoin Cash, like I was saying, had to have its own identity forged in the in the fires of not BTC, and then people were saying, well, what are we going to do instead? And this guy, Craig Wright, obviously, for his own reasons, wanted to be a prominent figure, and he just had this narrative that was very easy to sell to people like well obviously one megabyte is the wrong amount of block size so we should just make it as big as possible and just remove any limits as much as possible and to a lot of people who were rejecting that one uh, megabyte limit because they could see that that was wrong it was you know very attractive for them to hear something that was as far in the other direction as possible but of course like all things in life the truth is usually not one extreme or the other, it's it's a moderate balance in the middle and, and doing things at a, at a sensible and steady like pace, right? So in that way, the, uh, the BTC side of the fork, they got distracted from the vision of peer-to-peer cash by this kind of proof of authority coming from the core developers who said, look, we know that the one megabyte is the perfect uh, limit and it should not be raised past that. Uh, and then the, on the other side, after the fork, some people got distracted by Craig Wright uh, for kind of the same thing. There's his sort of uh, top-down pronouncements that I know the best thing, which is no limits, right? Even though people did not necessarily, you know, come to a considered reasoned uh, decision about that. And that then created that conflict again in the BCH community and ultimately led to him uh, splitting off and this sort of Pied Piper <laughs> merry way with, with Bitcoin SV and he has his large following of, of people who believe his his kind of narrative or or story about it. And there is that strange duality where Bitcoin Cash at the moment is like the younger brother of, of BDC trying to sort of up, rise up and, and prove that it had merit. And then Bitcoin SV is like the smaller brother again of, of Bitcoin Cash that is also doing its own different alternative approach and hoping to sort of rise up and, and reach ascendancy. Um, but I, I, I don't see that as I do keep an eye on the Bitcoin SV community because uh, like in contrast to uh, Dan Held, I'm not going to say that they're gone forever and, and, and never coming back. If they have some good ideas, while well, the Bitcoin cash community should be paying attention to that and incorporating those where possible. But on the other hand, uh, I, I think that they've, they've got the wrong end of the stick there. And just that it was very easy for some people to to fall for that kind of loud uh, voice that seemed to have a strong vision, even if, as you reasoned it through, it didn't 
it kind of fell apart a bit at the seams, which uh, Vitalik talks about here too. About where he's touching the Gomorrah, I don't understand why mm -hmm. that's necessary. I think that's, um, I mean, he could have done it without that, but that, I mean, that just, it's a marketing strategy. Like, it gotcha. sort of gives him more salience. Like, there's other big block personalities, right? But what's the difference between with Craig Wright? He's not just a big, uh, a big block personality, he's potentially Satoshi. Um, and he did say all the big block things, right? Like he talked about how, oh, the concept of a fee market is fundamentally like economically wrong and it should be it should be a free market and you should be able to have blocks as big as you want. So, like he repeated all the talking points. And so a lot of people were kind of sucked into that, right? And you know, so he unfortunately was able to basically dominate a big part of the Bitcoin Cash community for a long time. And then... Eventually, of course, um, you know, more and more people started to catch on. Um, he would just say technical things that are completely wrong, right? Like one example of this that I um, remember is that he mixed up the concept of 256 bits and two to the power of 256 bits, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, the difference is it's like the difference between, you know, 80 and the concept of 80 digit numbers, right? Um, and because of this, like he made this, made this argument Arguments that said that Bitcoin that Bitcoin's elliptic curve is friendly to cryptographic pairings. Like you don't have to understand what that is, but if you want to know, I have articles on both at Vitalik.ca. Um, but <laughs> but basically, he made this like technical argument that really hedged on this point. And then when people when people pressed him on it, it's like, yes, what? No, no. Like what? Look, exactly. The the height is like what two two to the two hundred and fifty six bits. That's uh, a very uh, a very tiny amount of information. No, 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 no. Two hundred two to the two fifty six bits is more than the amount of information in the universe. And like he, you know, equivocated and kind of like preyed on people's inability to un understand that mathematical nuance. And I called him out. And eventually, I even called him out in person at this uh, conference in Seoul. Like I just uh, stood up and asked the you know, hey, you know, conference organizer, why are you letting this fraud speak at this conference. Yes. And uh, I remember even some big blockers at the time getting angry at me. Um, but, you know, eventually they yeah, did get rid of him. And then Craig, well, basically Craig Wright um, was forced to, to split off because the rest of the community refused to accept some network change that he wanted. And so then there was the BCH and BSV. And then in the Bitcoin Cash community, there was this drama of are they going to add a developer fund where they redirect 12.5% of the revenue from the miners to the devs? And according to the libertarian non-aggression principle, is this technically theft? <laughs> and, um, like his um, understanding of the technical depths of cryptocurrency was lacking in a way that you, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, certainly would not. Yes, exactly. But the point is that like, even after Craig Wright got expunged, the Bitcoin Cash community kept having these disagreements, right? And now yes. after this uh, development funds dispute, there's, there was a further split between Bitcoin Cash and ABC. Um, and so, you know, the, the the branching tree continues to extend, right? So, so in that way, it's disappointing to see those kinds of splitting. There was never a result. It is. I would have definitely like wanted to see more of a kind of like principled coin with a that like tries to be bitcoin but but you know follows consistent big block values but yeah. i don't know maybe i should just like stop expecting projects that i have no involvement in to uh, care at all about what my values are and you know like maybe ethereum just like is right so yeah and i mean this is exactly what i was talking about for me 
I left uh, the Bitcoin Cash community because I was disillusioned in the exact same way as Vitalik was. And I just felt like, look, this is not, you know, it's not working. It's not coming together. Too many people fighting over the, the scraps um, of the idea that, that sort of once was, right? But I came back and in coming back, and I think Vitalik and, uh, and others uh, will will too, as the as the community solidified, I, I came back because it did ultimately fight off those outside influences. Like as Vitalik sort of alludes to, it is a, a downside to have a coin that has these splits and has people constantly sort of, you know, coming up with their own ideas and wanting to go their own way. And that does draw momentum away from the community in the short term, at least. But in the long term, having those splits, I don't see as a negative to a coin. I actually see it as a strong positive. If you, again, if you think in the very big picture, and the reason is because that focuses the community and it means that the narrative of that coin becomes stronger and more consistent as people who want to do some tangential or some different thing, they leave. And the ones who remain and who keep spreading the coin and the message to other people, they gather more momentum and more strength that they're doing the right thing. And so ultimately, Bitcoin Cash is a very special, you know, the most special cryptocurrency because it is the only coin that has had the amount of fervor and disagreement and fighting over what is the real meaning of this this coin of any cryptocurrency. You know, besides Bitcoin, there's no coin that has, or besides Bitcoin Cash has been the most forked cryptocurrency ever. Like, uh, it obviously, it was in the original Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash fork, and then it was in the Bitcoin Cash to Bitcoin SV fork, and then the Bitcoin Cash to Bitcoin BCHA fork. You know, the uh, Ethereum has had one fork, uh, and 99% all the rest have had zero forks, basically, that resulted in new communities. So Bitcoin Cash is the only fork, the only, the only coin that has had such a strong vision and such a strong driving force of a community that it has survived through three major community disagreements of, of that sort. You know, Ethereum's only had one, and the rest have had zero. So it's a magnitude of, of difference. And yet the community is still there and still pushing for it. And ultimately that's a recipe for success because it proves the fundamental idea of cryptocurrencies of decentralization, which is no one person is in control because Bitcoin Cash has, has proven in a way that no other coin, you know, has or maybe ever will, that if some one person tries to grab power or start putting in ideas that the community disagrees with, that they'll get kicked out. It's the only community that has developed a credible set of uh, antibodies and resistance to somebody taking over like that, and they will get rejected and the chain will carry on uh, without them. Um, you know, whether it was the Bitcoin core developers or whether it was Craig Wright or whether it was a Maurice Sacher, who was the, um, Bitcoin, you know, cash ABC, uh, developer, uh, and ironically the original progenitor of Bitcoin cash. So he started the whole thing, but then once he started making some choices that the community disagreed with, even he was out, right? So it's the only one that is driven by a vision rather than by some centralized or semi-centralized group of people keeping keeping things together uh, at the top and that 
that is very, very special and very, very powerful. And that, that is why I think it can rise to be the global reserve currency in a way that uh, most other coins can't. So I've just got one other quick clip here from um, Vitalik, uh, is a separate part of the podcast where he's talking about a, a similar topic. Broadly, like the big picture, what kind of stuff are you worried about in terms of problems that might arise? Are we talking about small bugs? Are we talking about like emergent social, unexpected social bugs? You know, what are the things that worry you about the future of Ethereum that you want to make sure you construct mechanisms that prevent mm. those things from happening? So one of the lucky things there was um, that this particular bug only prevented proposals of blocks. It did not prevent attestations, right? So attestations is just a mechanism for voting on blocks. And it's the attestations that are actually responsible for the chain finalizing. So like coming to this more permanent agreement on blocks, right? So the chain was actually quite stable all the way through. Um, the um, I think the thing that we generally learn from these experiences experiences is just how valuable it is to have this uh, multi-client network. Right, so this is one of these areas where I think Ethereum distinguishes itself from like Bitcoin, for example, right? That in Ethereum, we don't have one single client that, that everyone um, just runs, right? There's multiple implementations of uh, the protocol. And these multiple implementations, they all process and verify the blocks that each other can, you know, verify, right? So they all speak the same language. Now, sometimes when there's a bug, they disagree, right? And when two clients disagree because of a bug, we call this a consensus failure. And consensus failures are pretty serious, right? And when you have um, um, client monoculture like Bitcoin does, then like it's more rare to have consensus failures. Though you still have them, actually. Bitcoin had a consensus failure between two different versions of the same client back in 2013. Um, but they're less likely to happen. But the interesting thing is that the multi-client architecture has actually, I think, saved Ethereum much more than it's hurt it. So even in this most recent incident, right, like Prism was not producing blocks, but all the other clients were still producing blocks. Um, There's four it, others, right? Yes, it's a Prism, Nimbus, Teku, and the Lighthouse. Um, and then also Ethereum back in 2016 had this fun event that we call the Shanghai DOS attacks. Right. So we're not going to go into all the details of that, but essentially the point that Vitalik is making is that you, you want to have multiple different client implementations running your coin because it gives you more resistance to software bugs and also obviously it decentralizes the social aspect of the control. If you have these projects that are run by different people who are in charge of maintaining them, maybe in different programming languages or with different social structures, you know, different people are involved in deciding what goes in and what is out and all that sort of stuff, then you need to have that negotiation among those developers to uh, create and progress the, the network. And that's the grand failing of Bitcoin BDC. And just as Ethereum has managed to address that to some extent, Bitcoin Cash has also addressed it in a similar way where it now has six uh, main implementations that are running and independently maintained by their own teams. And that is why it has the strength. Um, one of the reasons at the at the software level to fight the to fight off any kind of Craig Wright or individual other person, as well as the strength at the community level in terms of the involvement of of individuals and and people being able to um, shrug off or or reject uh, you know such individuals. So 
really, really uh, interesting to note, you know, that he makes that point as being a strong case for Ethereum over Bitcoin BTC. And, and that same argument kind of applies to Bitcoin BCH over Bitcoin BTC. So, yeah, that, that sort of concludes my analysis of the uh, Dan Held and uh, and, Lec and um, Vita Vitalik uh, comments, you know, but just some very interesting commentary from outside the Bitcoin Cash community uh, about it. So now I've got this segment here, community comment of the, the week. Again, this is also to these same themes. So Bitcoin Cash Rules uh, said on uh, Reddit, Lightning Network is a bait and switch to avoid people from selling their BTC for BCH or whatever coin that can function as a better money. The switch will be moving to a custodial banking system that pretends to be based around Lightning Network. It doesn't seem to be working though. Competing currencies are catching on and BTC is struggling with this fact. Internal stress is starting to show in their communities because they are getting more and more aggressive and rude towards others, with BCH being one of the usual recipients of that aggression. Whole swaths of new people are entering cryptocurrencies that don't even care about SegWitcoin BTC and never will because it's actually useless in anything. Ethereum greater than SegWitcoin will be the inflection point. And this I completely agree with. This was absolutely, you know, a spot on comment and it sort of echoes what Vitalik was saying about, um, you know, with uh, different coins competing with, uh, with, with Bitcoin and... Uh, it, it sort of also underscores that, uh, well, it was with what Vitalik was saying about Lightning Network, that it's this kind of vaporware that, you know, doesn't really work, fantasy software that he kind of called it. So it does echo that. And it also makes the point in contrast to Dan Held saying that the narrative has been decided, Bitcoin Cash is sidelined and nobody cares about that. And also uh, that Ethereum is a separate thing and it's oil rather than... <gasps> than gold or, or, or whatever and and like that that's just completely false you know the new people that come into cryptocurrency they don't see bitcoin bdc as this grand thing that you have to own no they take a look at all the coins on their merits and a lot of them go for ethereum or they go for bitcoin cash or they go for dogecoin or they go for whatever appeals to them they don't think it's bitcoin and only bitcoin that's a relic of the thinking that we had before before the forks in Bitcoin and also before the rise of all these other different cryptocurrencies. And so I just really liked this um, point that was made because I really like this comment. Internal stress is starting to show in the BTC community because they're getting more and more aggressive and rude towards others, with BCH being one of the usual recipients of that aggression. I had never considered it in that way but I completely agree with that. I think that that just sums it up perfectly. That's why the Bitcoin community is known for being more and more toxic and aggressive like we saw in the clip from Bitcoin 2021 at Bitcoin Miami uh, and the shitcoin toilet paper and all that stuff um, last week or oh, we're gonna see here. So I've got another community comment of the week, double special this week, usually it's only one, but. I also really like this comment from Mob2 on Noise.Cash, who said, as the Bitcoin Cash community grows larger, you're going to encounter more and more people that you won't like. Counterintuitively, this is actually a good thing because it meant that the community has grown larger. It is no longer a small group of harmonious people. I absolutely do not want Bitcoin Cash to stay a small group of harmonious people. Bitcoin Cash is the people's money and money for the entire world. And the more people coming in, the more likely you will encounter people you won't like, and that's completely okay. 
And I really want to echo this sentiment because that's exactly true. As the community grows bigger and larger, there will be more disagreements uh, about these things. And as we've seen, these past disagreements have sometimes led to people forking off, and that's fine if that's what they want to do. But in general, the community should still be amenable to trying to keep everybody on the same page as much as possible, because what should unite everyone is this vision of peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, of cheap transactions, and of everybody trading commerce freely directly on the blockchain. And as if people can agree on those things and work to make those things uh, better and a, and a priority, then uh, any disagreements about any other extraneous subjects should not should not come in the way of that, and and we should be you know an understanding and and diverse and tolerant community because the the more people and the more opinions you have involved, the better. As long as everybody has that you know can fundamentally agree that they all want to trade cheaply, which which should be a pretty easy thing uh, for everyone to be on board with. So yeah, fantastic comment by Mob Two there. So yeah, here we go. This is what I was just talking about. This meme of the week. Uh, this week comes from Bitcoin Orama, aka Alex Lawn, who was at the Bitcoin conference in Bitcoin Miami 2021, and posted what he is titled "Shitcoin Toilet Paper," which was that the toilet paper at uh, the Bitcoin 2021 conference did have uh, printouts of the Ethereum logo, the Bitcoin Cash logo, the US dollar, and the Litecoin logos sort of branded on it. And I love this. I absolutely love this. I think this is fantastic for Bitcoin Cash, for Ethereum, for Litecoin, even for the US dollar in some respects, which is that if uh, the Bitcoin community, A, is so toxic and self-absorbed that this is how they want to treat you know, other cryptocurrency communities, then they're really just shooting themselves in the foot because they're getting a bad reputation for just being, you know, uncooperative and aggressive. But on the other hand, it also shows that as much as the Bitcoin BTC crowd want to think we are the one and only true currency and all the rest are irrelevant. Well, if that was true, they wouldn't even mention these things. But the fact that it's in there on the toilet paper, that it is a joke among their community, that shows that it's making an impact. You know, they would say in cryptocurrency, like um, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win, right? And that's the way it's gone for banks, right? The banks ignored cryptos, then they sort of made fun of it and mocked it, haha, this is a joke going away. Then there was fighting you, there was a bit of regulation and what are we going to do about this? And then ultimately now the banks are adopting Bitcoin and that's exactly the same thing that's happening with the Bitcoin community against all of the other cryptos where first it was a Bitcoin and only Bitcoin and nobody really talked about the other alternatives, then it became uh, laughing, you know, well, this sort of uh, shit coins and everything, oh, they're so, they're all scams or they're irrelevant or whatever. Then they fight you. Again, this toilet paper is kind of the fighting of like, no, well, they've really got to go away. Like, they're, they're irrelevant. Don't look over there at them. They're shit. <laughs> you know, they, they have to, they have to create these toilet paper to reassure themselves. And then you win, obviously, it's the final stage, which is that a lot of the Bitcoin BTC people will realize, wait, maybe I should look at these alternatives. And a lot of people who are coming to the scene for the first time who see this will think, okay, that's a bit much. Like, why would I want to join a community that that operated like that or thought thought that was funny? So, yeah, I thought that was uh, amazing. You know, the Streisand effect, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So Bitcoin Cash getting free publicity to everybody 
uh, sitting on the toilet at the, the Bitcoin conference. So that's pretty, uh, pretty funny. All right. So message to the community as we just wind down the show, you know, usually this is an opportunity for guests to sort of, uh, give a message to everybody. Obviously this time it's, it's just me and everybody knows my thoughts, but I, I guess I want to say that really the, the Bitcoin cash community is doing really well. I think it's on a really strong uptrend. Uh, I mean, the, you know, it doesn't always reflect in the price and that's fine, but I'm seeing more and more just organic voices coming up in the, in the community that other just people starting YouTube channels or, um, first, firstmill.com, Gabriel Chang, like his YouTube channel where he's in Australia, he's spreading adoption. You had, like we saw with those Venezuelan influences and George Donnelly in uh, Venezuela. I've got to give him a special uh, shout out as well too. Um, I meant to include this on the slides, but I guess uh, I guess I forgot about it and didn't um, didn't bring it up here. But let me just quickly pull up this uh, thing. I made a comment on a thread. Here we go. Um, so he posted this picture this week, here we go, of uh, one of the employees of his company who is standing out here is Angel from Team Panmoney aboarding Pan Money aboarding, onboarding all of the employees of the Kanguro Tech Store, new BCH mer merchant in Maracaibo, Venezuela to Bitcoin Cash this week. So this photo is yeah, obviously in, in Venezuela and his team member has, has convinced this tech store that they should accept Bitcoin Cash and then has realized, wait a second, if the store accepts Bitcoin Cash, well, logically, the people that we want to make Bitcoin Cash consumers could be the employees of that store because they're already learning about receiving Bitcoin Cash. So they could also learn about spending it and then go out and spend it to other uh, stores. So in this picture, this uh, one member of, of his team is talking to, it's got to be at least, you know, 30 or 35 uh, employees who are all standing listening to him and undoubtedly would all be pretty soon downloading wallets and sending money to each other and trading. And this kind of ground level adoption, it's the complete opposite of what you see in the Bitcoin BDC community with, um, you know, those v the Visa card that we talked about earlier or with El Salvador, El Salvador, you know, the president saying to everyone, you can use Bitcoin. Instead, this is the opposite, where the, the people themselves are starting to use Bitcoin Cash and the government will have to follow the people's lead rather than the people being directed and told by the government. And that is just absolutely amazing. So, yeah, big shout out to, to George and, and the entire Pan Money team in, in South America because this is just absolutely amazing. It's just a delight to see. So I think, yeah, the community is doing, doing really well and... As always, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it and we're going to see a huge uh, payoff for those results over the next 12 to 18 months as that snowball really uh, builds momentum. Uh, I, I truly believe it. So that's the, that's the end of the show. Um, so as usual, the slides and resources are available at uh, bitcoincashpodcast.com. I've got to thank the donators as always. Thank you very much for your support. I really, really appreciate it. It's it's absolutely uh, amazing. You know, you can just go on the YouTube channel, the QR codes there, and just scan that, and 
uh, donate for those who don't uh, know how that operates. And my shout out this week goes to Beanie and Darcy, who are friends of mine who I was talking to yesterday about uh, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin Cash and, and my podcast and everything. And hopefully they are <laughs> they're listening. So a uh, big shout out to them and uh, welcome to the Bitcoin Cash community. Uh, it's a good place to be. So that will do it for today. Uh, thank you for listening and until next time. He pulled out his laptop and rang up the site Looked at me and said, this'll change your whole life Then he started explaining the basics to me The miners make money by taking the fee Every time a transaction is made incomplete And they work every minute and day of the week A guy named Satoshi created this all He's the mastermind of it, the brain in the ball There's a lot more to say, but before I begin Just tell me right now if you're out or you're in